am about to go the way of all the earth. And death is spoken of at the start and at the end of our text today. But nowhere does it say directly that David dies. Uh, Rather, as is so often the case, death is referred to by way of euphemism. Our usual euphemism for death nowadays is something like passed away, or maybe passed on, so-and-so passed away. A euphemism that just personally I don't like very much. It's too final, it's too impersonal, and it's horrifically obscure. Every time somebody refers to somebody else as having passed away, I bet there'll be a child somewhere overhearing and thinking, I don't know what that means, but I sure hope it never happens to me or anyone I love. In contrast, David's euphemism, verse 1, is the way of all the earth. I reckon that's much better. He tells his son he's about to die, but that actually it's normal. Everyone gets to do it. Death is a part of life. To be human is to be limited, and David's reached his limit. The narrate, that's David's euphemism. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. The narrator's euphemism, verse 10, is David rested with his ancestors. Literally, David slept with his fathers. A, a gentle uh, euphemism. Uh, sleep or rest is something nice, even a reward. God grants sleep uh, to those he loves. And with his fathers, somehow still in David is in some form of community, even if, indeed if it's only in memory, but he's not alone. And there is a gentle hint of resurrection there too, isn't there? What, to sleep is, is to have at least the possibility of uh, waking up. So after this uh, um, prologue comes uh, David's charge to his son Solomon. And I think it's a passage that is... Um, largely misunderstood. Uh, sometimes, in fact, very commonly, these, this passage is referred to as David's last words. Well, they aren't. It, these, this passage is David's charge to his son Solomon. David's last words, actually, we looked at them two weeks ago in Second Samuel chapter 23. David's charge to Solomon is something quite different, but it comes in two parts both being covered with an introductory statement that covers the whole thing, and that introductory statement is, be strong and act like a man. What do those words provoke in your mind? What thoughts? Be strong and act like a man. What, what comes to mind if you hear those words? We'd, we would be cautious, wouldn't we? We'd be cautious in using such language ourselves, probably because of fear of being misunderstood. And the easiest way to misunderstand David is to imagine that these words include implicit sexism and misogyny, or as though the opposite of being strong and acting like, man, like a man is being weak and acting like a woman, or being timid and acting like a girl. That's what we might think, but that's quite alien to biblical thought. No, biblically, the opposite of acting like a man is to either act childishly or to act 
monstrously. So the first part of what it will mean for Solomon to be strong and to act like a man is simple and straightforward. He is to read the law of Moses, what we know as the first five books of the Bible. He is to read it and obey it. Being strong, it turns out, means being in submission. In submission to God through God's word. David tells Solomon that if he does this, it will go well well for him. Whatever he does, whichever way he goes, if he obeys God from the heart with his soul, meaning in every area of his life, God will guard and protect and prosper his kingship. And these aren't empty promises. They themselves are based solidly on God's word. General promises to all of God's people that it will go well with you if you obey the Lord as well as specific promises made to kings. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses writes for future kings, saying, uh, when he, that is the king, takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Uh, furthermore, in addition to that promise, in Second Samuel chapter 7, Uh, God did indeed make David a very particular promise, namely that, uh, 2 Samuel 7, 18, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And actually, uh, that promise was was not conditional upon obedience. It was unconditional. In fact, God promised that disobedience would be attended to swiftly by way of disciplinary action, but that person would never be rejected, not as Saul was. The kingship will last. So to obey God, to live a life lived in submission to God's rules, this is what it means to be strong and to act like a man. For Solomon is a man. To disobey God and to treat God's authority with contempt would, we take it, be for Solomon to be acting weakly and childishly, timidly and monstrously. For him to neglect God's law and to treat God's authority with contempt. Well, in the second part of uh, David's charge to Solomon... Solomon is charged more generally to take care of three matters of outstanding business. The middle matter of the three is simply to remind Solomon to continue to show kindness, as it is in the NIV, to show kindness to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead, a man who was exceptionally kind to David on the day he had to flee Jerusalem in order to escape the coup attempt led by his son Absalom. The word translated kindness 
Um, that's a really big word in the Bible. Uh, in Hebrew, it is chesed, a word which might be more fully translated in terms of all of its nuances and flavors, a word that might be fully translated uh, loving, promise-keeping, faithful kindness. Solomon will do well to continue to keep his father's promises insofar as they were promises to respond to kindness with kindness, to keep his promises to be faithful. But the first and third of these outstanding matters might be more difficult for us to deal with, seeing as the bottom line for Solomon from his dad, David, the bottom line for Solomon is something like, you'll know what to do, but however you do it, don't let this person die peacefully of old age. They should die a bloody death at the hand of an executioner. You'll know how to do it. Make sure it gets done. Some say that these final words of King David show us that he wasn't quite the forgive and forget Christian we all thought he was. That actually he wasn't that gracious after all. And that there's actually bitter political scheming behind these apparent, apparent policy reversals. Um, the vast majority of commentators go that way. I disagree. We considered Joab, son of Zeruiah, the brother of Abishai. We've considered Joab and his brothers a number of times. Uh, theologian and Bible scholar Eugene Peterson refers to Joab and his brothers as boneheads. Men who believe in God and are fully conversant in the language of biblical faith, but actually routinely take matters into their own hands. Seemingly convinced believers in the dicta, fortune favors the brave, and God helps those who help themselves. But they're boneheads. And Joab is a murderer. Not just murdering the two generals named by David in this passage, but others as well. And the particular offense to which David refers is that of killing generals who actually, originally, were opposing David, but David uh, made an amnesty with them. Um, he'd made a treaty with them. Joab, in killing them immediately after, effectively made David, his boss, look like a traitor, look like someone who couldn't keep his word. And in doing so, he made himself look like David's most loyal servant. Because of that, it was always politically impossible for David to bring Joab to justice. But David has learned the hard way how important it is not to let historical injustices just slide. With respect to murder, there is no statute of limitations. Solomon is to keep that in mind and to act wisely. Then there's Shimei, son of Gera who we met back in 2 Samuel 16 and then again in chapter 19. In, in chapter 16, um, David was fleeing out of Jerusalem and this guy turns up and pelts him and his, his, his friends with stones and shouts, uh, curses, um, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. But in chapter 19, he was pleading for forgiveness, acknowledging the sinfulness of his conduct 
and showing how he was the first of the tribe of Benjamin to come out to welcome the king back. And going against the advice of Abishai, the king, David, promised on oath not to harm him. Again, Solomon is uh, to keep this in mind and act wisely. Both men, Joab and Shimei, will die before the close of this chapter. And Solomon's handling of the situation is presented to us in great detail, presenting Solomon as an exceedingly wise king. And there is buckets of irony in how both of these men die. Um, You probably know um, the expression enough rope. Uh, You've heard of that? Uh, Yep, enough rope. The full version is something like, uh, give him enough rope and he'll hang himself. Uh, The expression has been part of the English language for well over 400 years. And the expression means, proverbially, but no action is necessary in punishing this person because if we just allow, if we just keep allowing them the same freedom as before, they'll use that freedom so foolishly that it'll be their own undoing. Enough rope. Give them enough rope and they'll hang themselves. And that's what Solomon does with both of these men. Enough rope. Joab bet the wrong way. In the apparent leadership vacuum of chapter 1, he sided with Adonijah. Adonijah is forgiven his folly in pushing himself forward as king. But then, after David's death, when Adonijah is stupid enough to try to ask for the young and beautiful Abishag the Shumanite to be given to him as his wife, Solomon knows that deep in his heart. Adonijah is unrepentant about trying to seize the kingship. This is a second go. This is a second bite at the cherry. To marry Abishag, the king's concubine, even if still technically what we would call a virgin, would have been to have a claim on the throne. Adonijah and his co-conspirator Joab die on the same day as a result of this thinly disguised power grab. They're executed for treason. The ambition of Adonijah and Joab both is their downfall. Enough rope. Shimei also dies before the close of this chapter. Solomon calls him in and tells him that he will continue to have his protection, but if and only if he agrees to live in Jerusalem for the rest of his life and never leave the city. Uh, Shimei reckons that that's actually, in the face of things, actually a pretty good deal, and he agrees wholeheartedly. He knows that it was a miracle that David forgave him. But three years later, chasing two runaway slaves, Shimei ignores the stipulation and, upon his return, uh, is executed. Enough rope. So by the end of chapter 2, Solomon's reign is secure and we are left to admire his judicious shrewdness. But in fairness to David, it was his wisdom first before Solomon. Why wisdom? Well, Joab and Shimei bowed the knee to David and in turn to Solomon when it suited them. And it suited them most of the time. But sooner or later, the true state of their hearts was revealed. 
that actually, deep in their hearts, they held David's authority and David's son's authority in contempt. Really, in Joab's heart, Joab was king. And in Shimei's heart, Shimei was king. David was wise to see that both men constituted an ongoing threat to the security of the nation because both men could not be trusted to be loyal to Solomon. Well, uh, let's think these things through theologically. Um, One of the ways in which the gospel message can be preached, one of the ways in which the gospel can be articulated is with words found on both John the Baptist's lips and also on Jesus' lips. And those words are, Repent! For the kingdom of God is near. What does that mean? Well, it means that access to the saving rule of God, in other words, access to God's friendship, protection, and love, is possible now for all men and women, boys and girls. It's possible since the days of John the Baptist right up until today. Repent and believe the good news. Access to the saving rule of God is promised the moment we believe in God's King, Jesus of Nazareth, and in baptism, promise to obey him. The word repent, then, simply means that we turn away from trying to rule our own lives, from being our own king, what we as Christians call sin, to recognize God's living right and authority to rule every aspect of our lives through the voice of Jesus, his Son, our Lord, Messiah, Christ. And when explained in these terms, we now understand that it is completely impossible for a Christian to keep on sinning. And the Bible is clear and unequivocal about that. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And John writes, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. That is the Holy Spirit. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Uh, someone might say, uh, but hold on, the the more I grow in godliness, the more I realize how sinful I am. To which we'd reply, exactly right. Uh, Again, to quote John, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the truth we live is a complex reality. As we walk with Jesus, we discover and uncover more and more layers of sinfulness, which in turn we confess and repent, renounce, hand over to Jesus, knowing that he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us us from all unrighteousness. We know that we don't and we never will belong to God except by grace. But we have no grace to keep on sinning once we're aware of the truth. Grace is an inherently limited quantity. Adonijah and Joab could be forgiven for their leadership grab, 
once, but not twice. Twice is a different thing. Shimei could be forgiven for treating the authority of the Messiah, God's anointed king, with contempt once, but not twice. Once was an error of judgment. Twice is something different. If Adonijah, Joab, and Shimei were offered unlimited forgiveness, infinite grace, it would have meant, in effect, that they had God's green light to endless self-rule, something that God will never agree to, never allow. Disobedience ends in death. Enough rope. These stories should shock us. Yes, to be sure, we know that we have God's forgiveness in Jesus' name again and again and again, seven times, times seven, 77 times seven, proverbially speaking, as much as we need because we always need it. But if we mistake that as God's green light to endless self-rule, then we are badly mistaken. We should think soberly and prayerfully about just how seriously we are taking Christ's authority in our lives and take warning lest we hang ourselves. We should also think soberly and prayerfully about how seriously we take God-given authority as it is manifest in others. As I'm sure you may have already noticed, the New Testament is highly vocal about the fact that for us as Christians, if we are repentant with respect to God's direct authority in our lives through Jesus Christ, his Son, we must also be repentant with respect to God's indirect or mediated authority God-given authority in human institution. That we are in submission to rulers and kings and governments, that we are in submission to elders, to teachers, wives, to husbands, children, to parents. Paul writes to Timothy saying, do not let anyone look down on you. And to Titus saying, these then are the things you should teach Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. And every time, for me personally, every time that I read those words, in the past I've pondered them and I've found them puzzling. Do not let anyone despise you. Um, Like Titus, I'm someone in pastoral ministry, charged by God and bishops with teaching, encouraging, and rebuking. If you're a teacher or a parent, that's God's charge on your life as well. What does it mean to not let anyone despise me? How do I do that? Well, I I feel I still have much to learn, but I think what I have learned is that when um, occasionally I let a situation go unchallenged, a situation in which someone is treating my God-given authority with contempt... I'm allowing something very dangerous to fester. I'm not doing anyone any favors. I'm not doing them a favor. I'm not doing myself a favor. I'm not doing the church a favor. In fact, I'm sinning. The David that we've met and followed all these chapters um, 
has been astonishingly gracious, compassionate, and kind. A man of chesed, faithful, promise-keeping, loving kindness. But he also knows that things will go wrong, seriously and quickly, if God-given authority is treated with contempt. That's what Solomon's charge to his son is all about. If despisers are allowed to go unchallenged. Now, as Australians, our culture has uh, been passionately anti-authoritarian for hundreds of years. We're really good at being anti-authoritarian and, incidentally, authoritarian at the same time. Um, So I don't want to sound authoritarian, and I know that I'm on difficult ground. But I also think that we're living in a society where God-given authority is quickly and easily despised and treated with contempt. And what the Bible is teaching us is that that is very dangerous indeed. We're not doing anyone any favors. Perhaps we, in considering how to apply this, we could consider the classroom and the family room. And I would like to think of both places, the classroom and the family room, hopefully as being places of chesed, uh, places of faithful, promise-keeping, loving kindness. And I'd like to think of both places as places where everyone has a voice and gets to be heard, how they think, how they feel. But I think both places should have little tolerance for God-given authority being treated contemptuously. Um, I'm not a parent, uh, but I... Uh, but here are some observations of where I think, as an outsider and as a bystander, I think I have seen it done right. In a household that I can think of, uh, the children are relaxed and happy and friendly. They know they have a voice and they expect to be heard. But if either one of the parents says to a child, did you disobey me? What that parent means is, are you treating my authority as your father or mother with contempt? And I've seen it. I know that that, that pulls that child into line real quick. Uh, 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 they, they know that they are on potentially extremely thin ice. Yes, children should have uh, the freedom to speak only, uh, openly, but never the freedom to treat parental authority with contempt. In another household I can think of, uh, and again, it's a loving, non-authoritarian household where conversation flows freely and people say what they think and feel. Sometimes you will hear, don't talk to your mother that way. And that's a shot across the bow. Uh, The child knows that's a serious warning. Um, If further warning is needed, it comes in the form of Don't you talk to my wife that way. And woe betide the child that ignores that warning. Uh, the The wording of that warning is beautiful because it reminds the child that there is an unassailable loyalty and relationship between the father and the mother and that the husband wife relationship is primary and they're outside of it and that the father will never allow his wife to be spoken to contemptuously. Uh, So that, I think, it's not a line I've ever had call to use, but I think it's a great line, don't you speak to my wife like that. 
Submission, as I've explained at length in other sermons, is not identical to obedience. They are highly related, overlapping concepts, but they're not identical. With respect to those in authority above us, disobedience might occasionally be the right thing to do. And the history of the church is that when that happens, we submit to their right to punish us. But what submission is, is recognition of God-given authority, recognition of headship. And as Christians, we know that God is not willing that they ever be held in contempt. Uh, In conclusion, uh, everybody dies. Everybody dies in the expectation of resurrection and final judgment. Uh, Be strong and therefore and act like a human being. That means live in submission to Jesus as the king, obeying him. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. So we don't misuse it. We must guard ourselves against treating God's authority in Christ with contempt or indeed 